0: Today we want to start a new series called Adventure Awaits and there's a little bit of a play on words there because the word Advent is in the word adventure. However, uh, we're going to be looking at some different personalities in the Advent story and all of them face their own adventure in the story as it unfolds. Today, as we begin, what we want to introduce is this idea that everyone in this story is doing one of two things. They are waiting and they are watching. Now, that is a common human experience that we all have. We are all waiters and watchers. We might all be waiting for something to happen uh, for our family or our personal life. Or we might be watching for someone, uh, whether it is at the holiday season, watching for a relative to come in from out of town, and so on and so forth. But when we think about this season of Advent, the characteristic of waiting and watching begins what is known, as Corey mentioned last week when he put that circle up on the slide the difference between is what is called ordinary time and the church calendar. And so Advent begins this sequence of different events that are celebrated, from the birth of Christ, to the resurrection of Christ, to the giving of the Holy Spirit, so on and so forth. So this begins the church calendar season, and what it is doing is it's preparing us in our spirit to be waiters and watchers with patience. So think about some of the things that you might be waiting for you might be waiting for the holiday obviously or waiting for your next birthday or your next anniversary or the next party you're invited to or if things aren't going as well you might be waiting for a new job you might be waiting for some accomplishment that you've been hoping for you might be waiting on the next purchase you're saving up money because you need a new car or something or whatever Uh, You might be waiting for the next season of year. I can't wait till winter's done, you know, that type of thing. Can't wait for spring. So we're all waiting for something, but we're also waiting for someone. Uh, For some people, they've been waiting a while for their significant other, their boyfriend or girlfriend, future wife or husband, or those of us who are older are waiting for our first grandchild, or whatever it may be. It's these different things in life that we have expectations to. Well, Advent, although it comes to us once a year and lasts only for four weeks, it puts us on an adventure as we see through the eyes of other people who had to wait and watch for what God had promised. Sometimes we know what those things are and sometimes we're unaware of what those things are. Uh, Sometimes we can't see over the horizon, and in light of that, sometimes what happens is the adventure is the unknown. It's waiting on what is going to come. So as we begin today, Adventure Awaits, uh, we're looking at some of the actors in the Advent story, and what we're going to do is take a look at how... Their waiting and their watching affected them. So I think most of us are probably pretty familiar with uh, the major characters of the Advent season. Mary, Joseph, the shepherd, uh, the wise men, that type of thing. But there are some others as well. And we're going to begin today by taking a look at, um, we're going to take a look at the Prophets, and we're going to zero in on one prophet in particular. And the prophet that we're going to take a look at is Isaiah. So, here's what we're going to do over the next few weeks we're going to take a look at the ancient uh, prophets. Next week, we're going to talk about an old man, and then obviously, you're familiar with the young woman, and then the angelic assembly that takes place. And then online only on December 25th and January 1st, we're gonna talk about the weary watchers and the starlit sojourners. So the ancient prophets, an old man, a young woman, an angelic assembly, the weary watchers and the starlit sojourners, that's gonna be kind of our thought over the next month. So today we wanna talk a little about, about the ancient prophets. They played a very unique role in the life of the nation of Israel. Most people have a misconception of what the prophets are and what their job description is. Sometimes people think that the Old Testament prophets are sort of like fortune tellers, that they look into a crystal ball and they tell you what's coming next. You, You need to wipe that idea out of your mind. While there might be some short-term predictions that the ancient prophets make, more than anything else, they are crisis managers for all the hardship that their people are going through. There's an occasional prediction here and there, but most of the time the prophets are speaking to the needs of their time and their circumstance. And what's unique about the Old Testament prophets is they use a lot of poetry. They use a lot of uh, images and figures of speech and metaphors and similes. And then when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers latch on to a lot of those imageries and they go, oh, we see how this applies to Jesus. So even though there's an immediate context and an immediate application to the Old Testament prophets, The New Testament writers see similarities in Jesus, and they begin to attach those images to Jesus himself. So during Advent, we're going to allow some of this uh, prophetic poetry to seep into our soul. The Hebrew prophets were individuals that told a big story, and the big story that they told is the roots of the nation of Israel— And the crisis at hand was calling people back to the plot that God created for them. The plot of goodness and righteousness and covenant fidelity so that they could stand out as a a priestly nation and a holy nation. What were they doing? They were primarily calling the people to the common good. Just like in our day and age, you have some people that don't have the best of motivations. They put profit over people, just like we see people today doing the same thing. And the prophets would often call these people back to the common good. That's why in the Old Testament you have over 3,000 verses that talk about justice. Imagine that, over 3,000 verses in the Old Testament Talk about social justice. So, the ancient prophets are individuals that are quite unique, and sometimes they are antagonistic to those that are in power. That's why a lot of them often got arrested. Some of them got thrown into dry wells. Some of them were martyred because they were a thorn in the side of the kings. And those in power. You know, there are antagonists toward God's big story. And we know some of them people like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, King Herod, Pontius Pilate, so on and so forth. And I think we recognize that there are certainly heroes in the Bible as well people like Moses and David and Daniel and John the Baptist and Jesus himself. But the Bible itself is this big, big, wonderful story that's telling of God, creating a world, placing mankind within Eden where we can flourish, and how it gets off track, and the prophets keep calling people back to that original story. The Bible is really not an encyclopedia of God facts, per se, nor is it a self-help manual. It is a story that calls people back in to God's purpose for his creation. So not only are we waiting and watching, God is waiting and watching in his creation, and he's commissioning people to care for the creation they live in. So people need some help along the way, and that's what the prophets do. The prophets have this listening ear uh, for the will of God. And what they do is they put forth this poetry that draws people in and forces them to evaluate their own personal life and, more importantly, the systemic things that are happening in the social world around them. What's important to keep in mind is that Every prophet has a historical context. Now, today I want to talk about Isaiah, or as I have on the screen here, 1st Isaiah. If you look in the Old Testament, there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. But that's not all written by one person. In fact, it's not all written at the same time. Scholars suggest that there are maybe Three or four different authors that contribute to this uh, work. And 1st Isaiah is the one that re-writes uh, the first chapters. He's also Isaiah of Jerusalem. He is the one that is in the royal court that is calling uh, the kings of Israel back to God, to the common good, to carry out God's will in society. Well, this is the historical context of Isaiah. Um, The New Testament will use the book of Isaiah extensively. Uh, The book of Isaiah as a whole is the most quoted book in the New Testament, interestingly enough. But these first 25 chapters um, shows Isaiah anticipating something. He's waiting on something. He's watching for something. Isaiah is living in the late eighth and early seventh century, and what we find—and this is BCE—Isaiah um, is dealing with a crisis, and the crisis is what is called the Assyrian Empire. Now, if you know anything about Jonah, you know that Jonah went to the capital city called Nineveh of the Assyrian Empire. The nation of Israel as it enters the land, uh, asks for a king, and God gives to Israel Saul and then David and Solomon. But when Solomon dies and his son takes over, Rehoboam, he begins to overtax the people, and the people rebel. And the nation divides into two sections— Ten tribes to the north, which is called Israel, and two tribes to the south, which is called Judah in the Old Testament. So they split into two nations, and they live in this very important part of the world called the Fertile Crescent. A lot of resources are there. And so you have major empires like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt that all want to fight for control of where these 12 tribes are, and now you have a nation that has split in two. And Assyria, who is the king of the hill right now, uh, wants to control this area. And they begin to threaten these tribes. Well, Isaiah understands that the king that's on the throne at that time, his name is Ahaz, is ready to kind of capitulate a little bit he politically is trying to figure out who should I make an alliance with because i got to save our nation from impending invasion. And out of that comes these poems. So here's where I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah. I want you to turn to chapter 2. And as we remind ourselves of the historical context What is Isaiah trying to do here? He's trying to give hope in a helpless situation. You have these people who cannot fight off all of these major empires. What are they going to do? Well, Isaiah is going to speak hope into the life of the people. And the way he's going to do it is this first paragraph, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, or we might say in the coming days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the Lord, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and he will settle disputes for many people. And they will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. There's this expectation that someday God is going to be able to bring a world of war to a time of peace. And that's what we celebrate each Christmas when we say peace on earth, right? And goodwill toward men. It's that theme that someday God in the days to come, He will bring a king that will bring people together. Well, you'll notice here In verse 4, it centers in on one person. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. I'm not sure Isaiah knows who that he is at this point. All he knows is that God has inspired him to look toward the days ahead and to see that in the last days or the coming days, God is going to do a work. And it's a work that humanity has never been able to accomplish themselves. We have never, ever been able to establish peace among different nations, have we? All we do is continue to look out for our own interests like other nations do theirs. And what we do is we fight over control of resources and so forth. Well, this king, whoever this king is that's going to come, he is going to teach a way of wisdom. And the way of wisdom is to abandon the folly of war to adopt the way of peace. Keep that in the back of your mind. So Isaiah doesn't know who this is, but he has this expectation that there is one that is going to come. And the subject matter he will speak about often is peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Second paragraph, chapter 7. So go over to Isaiah chapter 7. So there's a lot in between these different chapters, but here we see 1st Isaiah, or Isaiah of Jerusalem, is going to address King Ahaz specifically. And this is a longer uh, paragraph, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can in your own personal time if you'd like. But what we find here is that In the year 735 BCE, Jerusalem was under threat from an alliance that was made between Damascus and Samaria. And King Ahaz is afraid. And what we're told here in verse 2 is, Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so that the hearts of Ahaz, that's the king, and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. The people are so fearful, they're like a group of trees in a strong wind. They don't know what to do. And verse 3 says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Yassab, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Why is Ahaz out at the aqueduct? He's trying to figure out how much water they have. Are they going to be able to survive a siege if they are cut off from this resource? And then God tells Isaiah, say to him, be careful, keep calm, do not be afraid, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stumps of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Uh, Ramaliah. So what he does is he's saying, okay, I know it looks bad. I know it looks bad. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Well, how am I not going to be afraid? All of this chaos is going on around me. And it says here in verse 10, so we're going to jump down to verse 10. The Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether it is in the deepest depths or the highest heights. I will give you a sign to show you you're going to survive this. But what is that sign? It goes on here, and here's Isaiah speaking. Ahaz is hesitant. He says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to put the Lord to a test. But verse 13 says, Isaiah speaking, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For the boy, Before the boy knows enough to reject wrong, and choose the right, the land of these two kings you dread will be laid to waste. Here's the sign. There's this woman. She's pregnant. And when she gives birth to this boy, before he uh, is even old enough to choose between right and wrong, these threats are going to go away. Now, here, we use the, I use the New International Version, but it says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. The word that is used here is young woman. Okay, we, uh, the translators put virgin because this is going to be later uh, used by Matthew to apply to Jesus in the virgin uh, birth. But what we find here is there's this woman that's already pregnant, and most scholars think that it's Ahaz's wife, the king's wife, that's already pregnant, and when she gives birth, not too long after this. Uh, boy grows up this threat is going to go away. So you kind of have to hold this in the back of your mind because all these New Testament writers are going to jump into these texts and apply it to Jesus. So a young pregnant woman is the sign to King Ahaz. And the name that is given to this child is Emmanuel or God with us. Now that's not unusual. Many Old Testament names use the ending L. It's an Old Testament word for God, Elohim, L. So you have Daniel, Ezekiel. Okay, if you look at the meaning of their names, it has the idea of God in their names. Okay, so it's not unusual that this is the name that is given to this boy. All right. Again, later in the New Testament, they're going to grab onto that. And they're going to say, Jesus really is God with us. But that's not the point here. But here are these poets that are telling us something, and they don't really even know how it's going to come about. Paragraph number three is in chapter nine. So here is Isaiah of Jerusalem, and he understands the the problems that are going on around him. And all of a sudden, he focuses in on an area that is unusual. So, I should have put a map up here, and I apologize. If you have the land of Israel, you have down here, you have Jerusalem uh, and Judah, and then there's the Jordan River that goes north, and up to the north around the Sea of Galilee is the territory of Galilee. Okay, Well, Isaiah is down in the south, in Judah, in in and around Jerusalem. That's where he's ministering. But all of a sudden he looks north, up to this territory called Galilee. Take a look, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So what he does is he begins to look toward this territory that you're asking yourself, well, why are you looking to that territory? And then in the poem, what he says is this. If you jump down to verse 6, again, very familiar passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And then he's given these enthronement titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So the land of Galilee had the misfortune of being in the direct line of warring neighbors. Just north of them is Assyria. But the poet begins to focus on that, even though he's down in the capital area. And he begins to look, and he doesn't know who this is, at least at this point. There's one that's going to come. There's a child that's going to be born. And it could be any future king, because of these lofty titles that are given wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace but the new testament writer is going to jump on that right they're going to say ah that sounds like Jesus so Matthew especially Matthew quotes Isaiah extensively to suggest that this is a literal fulfillment of what Isaiah was only waiting and watching for okay Next paragraph, we're coming toward the end, chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. So Isaiah of Jerusalem is not done. In verse 1, another familiar passage: A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Then if you jump down here into verse 10, it says, in that day The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Again, Isaiah doesn't know who he's talking about, but this time he goes back to the roots of that first king that was looked upon with great celebration. It's David. And he comes from um, the line of Jesse and The Davidic monarchy is sort of like the Camelot of the Old Testament. Everything was going right. Now, there's somebody else that will come out of the line of Jesse. But how can that happen? What we find is that there is no king anymore. It's a stump in the ground now. But out of this line will come a shoot. And this shoot will continue to flourish and this next person that comes is going to have the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. So there's this expectation that God is going to do something in a profound way using the Holy Spirit. And it will be under his leadership that there will be a revival of justice in the world. And this Spirit of the Lord is described in a sevenfold way. And there might be a metaphorical image going on here. There are seven lights on the Jewish menorah. That this is the way that's going to light the way for the future of the nation. Only two more, real quick. Next paragraph, we're in the same chapter. Now you've heard this, verse 6. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, most people get this passage wrong. They're thinking in terms of animals. The animals are images. They are metaphors here. What Isaiah is doing is he's using uh, zoomorphism. And that is using these animals. And other prophets do it as well. When Daniel has his visions, he sees four beasts coming up out of the sea. They're not literal beasts. They represent kingdoms. And what Isaiah is doing is he's talking about the vicious world here, using these animal imageries. And what we find is, he's not really talking about whether lions are going to eat antelope. That's not the point of the paragraph. The point of the paragraph is all these vicious animals represent people that prey upon the vulnerable. And there is a coming day when we won't have to worry about human predators anymore. God is going to do something and he's going to bring a true knowledge of what God is like to the whole earth. So the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. One last one and then I'm going to tie it all together. Okay, Go over to chapter 25. In chapter 25, this is about near the end of this author's contribution to the book that we call Isaiah. And here in verse 6 through 9... Isaiah is going to imagine that God is preparing a great feast because of death's destruction. Verse 6, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And in that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So what we have here is an interesting image. So The idea of death, and of course all this uh, war that is going on during Isaiah's day leads to bloodshed and leads to death. And Isaiah here describes death like a shroud that is cast over all the people. The way I might put it, it's like the death sheet that's put over a corpse. Okay, Everyone is living in fear of this death sheet. And the tyranny of death, affects all of us, and it is what often, uh, it often causes us to think about the purposes of life. I mean, I live for, you know, 75, 80 years, and then I'm gone. Why? I mean, what's going on here? But then Isaiah does this. He says there's a feast that is coming, and this feast will have the best meats and the finest of wines, and what, what is being celebrated? Death's destruction. And then what he does is he flips the imagery here. God has now acted and the shroud of death has become a tablecloth of love's triumph. It's no longer a death sheet pulled over the people. Now it's ripped apart and it's put on the table and people are invited to come sit around the table and wipe the tears from their eyes because death has been taken care of. Now, you have been so very patient in a very difficult uh, string of writings. But if you know the story of Advent in the New Testament, all there's many, many allusions to these passages here. So what? how do you summarize it then? Well, here's the way I summarize it. When Jesus comes into the world, it's sort of like the people that are around him observing what he is doing, what he is teaching, what he is providing for the people, healing, and so forth. And it's like a light goes on, and those that are following him would probably proclaim this, this is what we have been waiting for. This is what we have been waiting for, because in the days to come, God is with us. "...and his authority will establish endless peace, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, to bring full knowledge of God to the earth, so that death may be swallowed up forever." So I've taken all those paragraphs and I've squeezed it into this one summary. To Isaiah the prophet, he didn't know when those days were. But, we see part of the days that were expected fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We're still awaiting the ultimate fulfillment of those days. So we're still waiting. We're still watching for the days to come. God was with us in the person of Jesus. It's called the incarnation. He walked among us. He showed us what God is really like. And his authority wasn't to overthrow the Roman government and take the throne and, and to uh, rule the people. What he wanted to do was take the God-given authority, because he really is the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, and the mighty God, and established peace. That's why he says things like this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons and daughters of God. And then, we know that the Spirit of God rested upon him, and in his wisdom, and in his parables, and in his teachings, he showed people a better way forward, And when people heard it, when their eyes were open, when the light went on, they go, oh my gosh, this is what God is like. This is who God is. And then ultimately, remember the Apostles' Creed? You have all these things that are all brought together into one creedal statement. You see, Advent is only the beginning of the story. Resurrection or Easter completes the story. Death is swallowed up forever through the resurrection of Christ. And what we find taking place here is in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have all these writers that dip into Isaiah and quote all of these verses because they said, that applies to Jesus, that applies to Jesus, that applies to Jesus. And they began to see that all that the prophets were hoping for, and it's not just Isaiah, You have Micah and Zechariah and others that contribute as well. But what you have is all of it converging into the person of Christ that then invites us to join him at the table, love's table, and to be peacemakers for God's work in the world. Thanks for your patience. That was was a message that needed some concentration to follow. So would you stand with me? I would like for us to pray and uh, my closing thought to you is this the good news of advent is not that we are faithful in our waiting but that God is faithful in his coming bow your heads with me for a second what are you waiting and watching for? are you getting frustrated in that waiting and watching Are you beginning to question the faithfulness of God because you've been waiting so long? The good news of Advent is that no matter how frustrated we are in waiting for God, He will show up. He has before, and He will again. We might not know how He's going to answer our needs in the moment. We might not know who He will use and when it will happen. But what we do know is he has shown us what he is like through the person of Jesus, the incarnation of God himself through the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Lord God, we come to you and we take this time of the year to wait and to watch, to linger and to learn and to obviously just continue to be faithful to you, even when we find it frustrating. So, Lord, help us this season to renew our spirit. Help us to be patient and wait for you to do the things that you will do. We thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I hope you have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning. God bless.